Morning, church. Scripture reading for this morning comes to us from Acts chapter 17, verse 16 through 34. Acts chapter 17, verse 16 through 34, and this is the word of God. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those that happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the area Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way that you are very religious, for I pass along and observe the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, Will you hear again about this? So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed him, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. The grass surely withers, and the flowers indeed do fade, but thanks be to God, the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Good to see a fuller sanctuary this morning. Praise God. Today we're back in the book of Acts, and we're looking at the famous passage where Paul speaks at the Areopagus, perhaps better known by its Roman name, Mars Hill, which is why I titled today's message, Paul Speaks to the Intellectual Elites at Mars Hill. Just easier to pronounce, right? Mars Hill. Uh, let me set the message up by reminding you of what happened in our previous passage, since it's been a while, right? Uh, earlier in this chapter, we saw Paul testifying of Christ in the city of Berea, and we were told that the Bereans 
were of more noble character in comparison to the Thessalonians because the Bereans, right, these people, they, they would hear out everything the apostle had to say, but then they would go and examine what they heard from Paul and examine with the scriptures and compare it with the very words of God. And so Paul considered them to be a noble people of noble character. Unfortunately, he couldn't stay there too long because these Jewish thugs, like they were literal thugs, people from Thessalonica, they stalked Paul, right, traveled all the way from Thessalonica to Berea where Paul was in order to drive him out of the region. And so we're told that the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way and sent him all the way down to the great city of Athens. And Silas and Timothy agreed to join Paul as soon as they were able to. And so Paul, in our passage today, is in Athens, waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him. But he's the great missionary and the greatest evangelist the world has ever known. So he's not going to just sit around and do nothing, right? He's going to take this opportunity to study the city and then to evangelize to his people. Now, in order for you to fully appreciate our passage today, I need to say something about the city of Athens. By the time Paul visited Athens, which was the middle of the first, first century, one writer put it this way. Athens was in the late afternoon of her glory. In case you didn't know, Athens reached its golden age in the 5th century B.C., and it's understood that few cities have equaled the splendor of Athens when it was at its peak. It's a great city. I mean, consider the fact that Athens is thought of by many to be, and I quote, the cradle of Western civilization, right? The birthplace of democracy, of music, of philosophy, of ethics, of theater, and of medicine. That's how influential this city was. But then it began a devastating war with Sparta that dragged on for nearly three decades, and it was during those decades that much of Greek power was diminished, and Athens was never able to regain its former glory. So that's a brief history of Athens. Nonetheless, when Paul visited Athens, it was still a beautiful city with many of its cultural artifacts on full display, and it was still considered to be the intellectual center of the ancient world. So imagine walking through the streets of such a beautiful and culturally rich city. I mean, how do you think you'd feel taking in all that culture at once? I mean, even today, people pay good money to visit places like Athens or Rome in order to appreciate their rich tradition, culture, and history, don't they? So what I want you to first notice in this passage is Paul's response to what he observed in this beautiful city. Okay, and I don't think at all that he walked around the city only thinking that, man, this city is so idolatrous and despicable. I, I, don't, I don't believe that. But it does say that his spirit was provoked. Right? Please don't overlook that. His spirit was provoked. The Greek word that's used is paroxyneto, where we get the English word paroxysm, which means an outburst of emotion. Right? The new uh, international version, NIV, translate, translate this as he was greatly distressed. 
The King James puts it as his spirit was stirred. And interestingly, the same word is used to describe the the sharp disagreement Paul had with his older mentor, Barnabas. Remember that incident? In both cases, Paul experienced a paroxysm. And so what I'm thinking is that this paroxysm that Paul experiences should, in some real way, inform the way in which we engage with our own culture too, don't you think? In the Reformed Presbyterian circle, right, that's our circle, that's our space if you didn't know, mainly due to the Redeemer network led by, you know, Tim Keller, uh, there has been a strong emphasis placed on loving and serving the cities we live in. And much of that emphasis has been very good and helpful. But I want to say that you cannot properly love the city you're living in unless you experience a paroxysm for the sake of the city. That's to say that we as Christians should be able to appreciate the good while calling out what is bad without being accused of being hateful. As Christians, we should be able to recognize the idolatry of a city while not denying the beauty and artistry that may be present in that city, right? That's what Paul was doing. While appreciating the art that surrounded him, he was able to see behind the art that there was this idolatrous heart that needed to be exposed. That is the mindset of every good missionary, I believe. I mean, that's probably the mindset we all should have as Christians. Let me, let me uh, take a moment to do this, hopefully, helpful exercise for all of us, okay? And I uh, hope you don't get too offended, right? I'm, gonna <laughs> I'm going to praise, but also point out some flaws or idolatries of our cities, okay? But first, um, so that I don't offend you right away, let me pick on Philadelphia a little bit, okay, since I lived there for a while. I, I love my time living in Philly, by the way. I still miss some of the relationships I formed there. Uh, it's a city with rich history, as you know, and the food culture is also very enjoyable. I mean, I confess the Philly cheesesteaks are overrated, but Chinatown, right, the Chinatown in Center City, Philly, is always worth visiting. However... I will say, sorry, David Kwan, I know you're a big fan of Philly, but uh, people there tend to obsess too much over their sports teams. There's also this unhealthy form of black activism that has a stronghold in that city. So many people, including Christians, have not been able to free themselves from that negative influence. And so my spirit is provoked whenever I think about the great city of Philadelphia. As much as I love it, there are some things that really concern me. All right, so do you mind if I do this with uh, our beloved DC and DMV area? Okay. Hope you don't get too offended. By the way, I, I now fully consider, I, I consider myself fully a Northern Virginian, having lived here now for 14 consecutive years. There has been no other place in the world where I've lived longer than that. Right? Philly comes in a very close 
two, second, and Seoul, Korea is third on the list, right? I love Northern Virginia. It's uh, more family-friendly than Philly by a good margin, and I'm glad that it's more friendly toward homeschooling. Uh, people would always look at us weird when we told them we're homeschooling in Philly. Here, it's just, you know, great, you know. <laughs> we love homeschooling, too. That's sort of a, a common refrain. And it's also good that they have a, f- a few uh, private school options that we're able to consider. The Korean barbecue scene isn't bad at all. And if you want to find good Vietnamese food, there aren't that many places that beat Northern Virginia, interestingly enough, right? Would you agree? No? And despite all the construction that we've seen on the roads these past few years, believe it or not, Northern Virginia roads are one of the cleanest in the whole country. I also love the opportunities this area provides for those who want to play sports. I was literally mind-blown when I first moved down here by all of the athletic fields that are made accessible for anyone to use. Didn't get that in Philly too much. However, right, brace yourselves. <laughs> However, because we're so close to D.C. and because many people move here and they live here in order to work for the government, my beloved Northern Virginians tend to be blinded by the negative effects of big government and its corruption. They think more government's good. Bigger, bigger the government, the better. The growing popularity of socialism among the younger generation should trouble more of us, but it doesn't seem to be the case. And so my spirit is provoked whenever I consider how we tend to idolize government and its influence. You okay now? You okay? It's all good? can still be friends. Anyway, that's how I usually think when I visit a city. I look around, I appreciate the culture, the art, the history, but also I I do my best to try to expose the idols, partly because I too have a proneness to wander, right, and and, uh, get entangled with such idols. Well, in our passage today, the Apostle Paul's spirit was provoked so that it compelled him, not just to pout on his own, but he, he reasoned, it says, in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. That's what we're told. And in verse 18, verse 18, we're introduced to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, generally speaking, philosophers tend to be too sophisticated to resort to physical violence, okay? I mean, Paul, he was literally beaten up in other cities, but he comes to Athens, and they don't, they don't beat him up physically, but, I mean, these are like, you know, intellectuals, so they're not going to use physical violence. What they do is they, they resort to name-calling, mocking, ridiculing. They use words, right? And so to the apostle Paul, they called him a babbler, essentially a fool. You know, in our current day, No matter how intelligent you may be, if you refuse to go along with the common secular narratives of our day, what happens? You will be accused of being 
a babbler, right? Anti-intellectual, right? Nowadays, they love calling people anti-science. You're, you're anti-science, aren't you, right? It's interesting because it's the secularists who basically reject basic biology when teaching gender and sexuality, and yet, somehow, we are anti-science. Don't, don't get tricked into that kind of argumentation. Well, let me say something about the Epicureans and Stoics since these were the two most influential schools of philosophy in Paul's day. Okay? First, the Epicureans. And by the way, I said this at 9 o'clock. If, if you've ever studied philosophy, maybe some of you are philosophy major, right? Don't be too hard on me, okay? I, I'm generalizing here. I'm going to summarize what they believe. I know more can be said. But generally speaking, this is who they were. Okay? The main goal of the Epicureans was to attain the maximum amount of pleasure and the minimum amount of pain in life. In our day, we use the word Epicureans to refer to a person who is essentially a hedonist. But Epicureans originally were not people who just recklessly pursued pleasure. I mean, they were thoughtful about it. They, they were known to be materialists which means they believe that this life as we know it was all there was to life, and you only had one shot at life. So they tried to live a lifestyle that reflected such a belief, right? but they were thoughtful about it. Right? So enjoy yourself because this life is all there is, or you only live once, so make sure you do what pleases you, what have been sayings that sort of fit their ideology. So the idea of, let's say, self-sacrifice, or the idea of enduring pain and hardship for the sake of others wouldn't have made much sense to them. It would, it would not have fit into their way of thinking all that well. On the other hand, Stoicism taught that life is filled with both good and bad, and that you could not really avoid the bad. So you had to do what you could to endure through it. Right? You had to endure through the hardships. And so... What doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. It would be a very like, stoic idea. Where I can't control everything that is going on out here, so, but whatever may come my way, I can still do my best to endure through it, make the best of it. Would be something that fit their ideology. The Stoics were considered to be very, a, a very noble people who accomplished much good in their day, as you could imagine, because they were again willing to endure hardship for the common good whereas the Epicureans, for the most part, chose not to go that route. Nonetheless, Stoic philosophy was still very empty because it was devoid of God. And there was real no lasting meaning behind the various hardships that they were called to endure. I mean, if bad things happened to you, you were just called to suck it up, right? To, to muster up the strength to endure it, perhaps for the sake of the glory of Rome or Caesar. But that was it. Was sort of empty in the end. That's likely why Stoicism is normally associated with someone who lacks joy in his or her life. Well, these intellectual elites were Paul's main audience in Athens, and he was asked to address them at Mars Hill. Verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, Mars Hill, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some very strange things to our ears. Right? Keep in mind, these people had no exposure to the scriptures. They had no understanding of the Bible. 
And so, yes, everything Paul was sharing was completely foreign to them. So they invited him to speak at their Areopagus. And it's helpful to know that this is the first time we see Paul addressing a very highly, uh, a highly educated intellectual class who had no working knowledge of Scripture. In previous, in the, in the prior chapter, uh, in Acts, 8, Acts 13, rather, we saw how Paul addressed Jews and, and God-fearing Gentiles who had knowledge of Scripture. And so Paul addressed them differently. He was able to quote extensively from the Old Testament because it was, again, the Jewish and God-fearing demographic. And then in Acts 14, we saw Paul encounter a crowd of uneducated pagans who still believed in the old gods like Zeus and Hermes. And so Paul had to talk to them differently, right? He used a different tactic. But here in Acts 17, he's asked to address a highly educated intellectual class who were committed to these sophisticated systems of philosophy. So here he is. It would be like one of us being invited to speak at Harvard to give an evangelistic, you know, talk, or maybe Yale or, or Cambridge, somewhere like that. Very intimidating, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be? But what, what makes Paul a master missionary and evangelist is not that he was always able to successfully lead people to Christ. Rather, it was that he, he appropriately contextualized the gospel to the audience he was speaking to without changing the essence of the gospel. That, that's an important component. Right? I mean, you can t- contextualize all you want, but if you compromise the gospel, then, then you're in trouble. Right? And whenever we hear someone preaching to an audience in a way that strictly appeals to their cultural sensibilities, so that message is in, you know, is no way offensive to them, what do we, what do we call that? And we normally say that that message is a watered-down message, right? We say he preaches a watered-down gospel. Or sometimes we may go so far as to say that he preaches a, what? False gospel. But notice Paul is not like that. You know, many people have offered a breakdown of Paul's preaching and uh, I really haven't read any that I thought were unhelpful. Everything I read was, okay, good point, good point, you know, very good insight. But for simplicity's sake, I thought I would share this basic three-point breakdown of Paul's preaching, right? The, the idea here is that no matter who the audience is, Paul consistently did these three things, okay? Number one, he offers an epistemological challenge. I'll explain what that is a little later. Secondly, he offers a personal challenge. And thirdly, he offers a gospel challenge. So I'll quickly summarize these three things and and, uh, bring the message to a close. Okay, first, he offers an epistemological challenge. In case you're unaware, epistemology is a study of knowledge, okay? And it seeks to answer questions like, how do we actually know what we know, right? What is knowledge, essentially? So what we're saying is that whenever Paul evangelized, right, he challenged what people claimed to be true. He, he challenged their knowledge. When speaking to Jews, for instance, Paul tells them that they had misinterpreted the scriptures and that Christ was indeed 
the central character of God's redemptive story. He challenged their knowledge claims about Christ. When speaking to the Greek intellectuals, Paul tells them that they had missed the points of creation and the basic purpose of life. He challenged their knowledge, what they claimed to know to be true. You know, whether it's Jew or Greek, educated or uneducated, he never allowed people to simply say, you know what, Paul, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. No. His challenge would have been, well, how do you know that to be true? And your relativistic claim simply cannot be true since God is the one who ultimately defines what truth is would have been his starting point. Now, I'm not saying that there are no gray areas in life. There are many areas in life where God's word does does leave room for disagreement. But the problem I hope you're able to see um, is that Christians, even Christians, are not willing to take a public stand on even the most basic and fundamental truths that ought to be self-evident to everyone, believer or non-believer. We become a bunch of cowards, essentially, living in this confused culture. I encourage you to slowly read through Paul's message in this chapter and see what he speaks about. Just keep in mind that This recorded message is but a a summary of what he actually preached. But even in this short summary, you can still learn a lot. There's a lot in here. I mean, we we see that he touched upon the doctrine of creation. He didn't shy away from that. He talked about who God was as doctrine of God and God's purpose for life. He talked about who man is, doctrine of man, you know, how, how fallen we are and how much in need we are of grace. And his climax of his message was in the death and resurrection of Christ. But there's a call to faith and repentance. It's all there. He doesn't skimp out on stuff. And every point was intended to challenge what these people claimed to be true about God and man, about morality and ethics and what life was ultimately meant for. So that's the epistemological challenge. Secondly, Paul offers a personal challenge to his audience. And to the Jews, he basically says, you know what, brothers, no matter how hard you try, or no matter how, uh, or what your family lineage is, you can never save yourselves by obeying the law. And to the Greeks, he says, the idols you worship, they aren't real. They will never satisfy you, nor will they appease any of your so-called gods. In either case, he exposes the futility of our human effort to achieve what we may perceive as the highest good. And to each group, it kind of hits them where it hits, hurts the most, right? That's a personal challenge. Thirdly, he offers a gospel challenge. And that simply means, whether it's to the Jews or to the Greeks, Christ is offered as the only solution that satisfies our greatest need, which is to be reconciled to a holy God. Because the common problem we all share, right, no matter who we are, is that we have sinned against God and we've been separated from him. So he makes that clear to all of his audiences. It's true that Paul contextualizes his message by quoting from their own 
poets here and by not reciting lengthy passages from the Old Testament. But look, that doesn't mean his message was less offensive. Paul fully acknowledged, for instance, that they were very religious, but he never acknowledged that their religion or worship was valid. You know, we sometimes want to believe that as long as people are sincere about their beliefs, all is good and well, but that's not true. That's not true. Paul had no qualms about preaching Christ to a people who had never heard of him before. And he had no problems calling upon them to repent lest they be condemned by Christ who will come to judge the world, he makes clear. You can, just cannot sugarcoat that reality. Let me, let me read from verse 30. The times of ignorance, Paul preached, God overlooked. But now, now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. That includes you, you Epicureans and you Stoics. And he continues, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I mean, that, he wasn't whispering this message. There, there, there was no, like, mic to speak into. He was belting this out with boldness and conviction. That, should, that, that ought to be our posture as well when we speak to this world. And unsurprisingly, after he spoke, it says that some of them mocked him, right? Brothers, sisters, have you ever had people mock you and ridicule you? People who try to malign you after you've done your best to testify of Christ? I challenge you to give yourself that opportunity and to put yourself in that position where you will be mocked. It'll be unpleasant, but it will help your faith to grow. I guarantee it. Say something truthful in your classrooms and in your workplaces. At places where people are sowing confusion about pretty much everything right now, about gender, about sexuality, about justice, about equity, about all sorts of moral issues. Say something truthful. It takes faith in the Lord that he will protect you and provide for you in those circumstances. But as you practice such faith, God will be honored and you will be blessed to have honored him. The idea of a weak and crucified Christ was utterly laughable to the Greeks during Paul's time. I think he would have known that, but it didn't matter to him because Paul was not ashamed of the gospel as he testifies in Romans chapter 1. For he knew that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes at first to the Jew, and then to the Gentiles. He did his best to contextualize the gospel message so that his audience would better understand what he was saying, but his trust was not in his own ability 
to win over his listeners. His trust was in the Lord to win over hearts and minds. He knew that his job was simply to be faithful to the message he was given. Not not to be clever about what to include or to omit. Not to be so sensitive to the political correctness of his day. Not, Not to be manipulative or unclear in his communication, but to be faithful, to be as clear as possible for the sake of his hearers, no matter what the consequences were going to be. Brothers and sisters, we must have such trust and confidence in the Lord as well so that we too could be faithful. Amen? The second time I did that, back to back, two weeks in a row. I know how intimidating it could be to speak to highly educated intellectuals. You know, most of us are not given the opportunity to do so on a regular basis, but that day may come, right? And I hope it does come to all of you. When that day comes and, and you speak to people you know who are clearly smarter than you, who have a higher IQ than you, let me give you a piece of advice. Right? Don't try to outsmart them or outmaneuver them. You can't. They're smarter than you. You just need to be faithful. You have to do what Paul did here. Be committed to being faithful and speaking the truth about God. Study study Paul's message here. He he covered a lot of ground here. I mean, just say something truthful about God's sovereignty, perhaps, as Paul does here. Say something truthful about creation, about the reality of sin, about the purpose to which we're called to live. Maybe you could explain to them that it's, it's not just certain groups of people in society that need to be saved, but that we're all fallen together and that all of us are sinners in need of God's forgiveness and grace. Maybe you can make that, just that point crystal clear to them. Remember that Paul considered himself to be the chief of all sinners. And so I want you to understand he was not being self-righteous when he was going from city to city, calling upon people to repent. He wasn't a finger pointer. He was was calling upon all to repent as he declared himself to be the chief of sinners, that we're all in need of the grace of of God. And that should be our attitude as well. We're to call people toward repentance and faith as we ourselves Humbly rest upon the mercies of Christ. And if people don't respond to you very well, then know that you're in very good company because people did not respond to Paul very well either. There will always be those who mock and sneer, of course, but there will always also be some, okay, not many, but probably some who believe, who respond well because God's word never fails he will always allow his word to bear fruit in the end. That's how you survive 14 years of ministering in one place. You trust trust in this reality, and you keep on trucking. You keep on going. You keep on preaching. You keep on sharing the truth of God. Some will mock you, but some will believe. 
be present for those who will believe. So brothers and sisters, as we press on in this new year, let's commit to being faithful to the Lord where we live, where we work and play. And let's leave the results up to him, knowing that he will do the work of bringing people to faith. And for those who have been absent for a while, maybe you're listening through live stream. You know, whether it's been a few months, maybe, maybe it's been two whole years for you, I encourage you to make plans to recommit yourself to the Lord and to your church family. It may help to read through your membership vows once again and remind yourself of what you once committed yourself to. And I do hope that you will be able to join us again soon. Our church community has not been the same without you. Because when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. And it truly has been as a long season of suffering as a church. So my hope and prayer is that God would use this year, 2022, to give many of us a fresh start and a new beginning. Amen? Pray together. Dear Father, we thank you that the gospel was not only meant to be proclaimed to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, not only to the uneducated, but also to the highly educated, and not only to the poor, but also to the rich. Our sins are great, but your grace is even greater, and the free offer of salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ testifies of your overflowing grace and kindness, and for that, we are truly thankful. And Lord, we may not be dealing with self-designated Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in our workplaces or social circles, but many of those around us are still equally lost within their godless philosophies, and they stand condemned by you unless they repent of their ways and they're forgiven, reconciled to you through Christ. And so as we interact with unbelievers in a given day or week, grant us a love and compassion for the lost, and may our hearts be provoked and greatly distressed by the blatant idolatries we witness in this world, that we may be compelled to share the good news of Christ to others with the assurance that you will bring some of them into your fold. Lord Jesus, come quickly, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. We'll stand together and give praise to God.